Hello, and welcome to season three of the Enter the Bible podcast, where you can get answers or at least reflections on everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask. I'm Katie Langston. And I'm Catherine Schifferdecker. And today on the podcast, we are answering a question that we received on the website at enterthebible.org. There's a place where you can go there and click ask a question. And yes, we actually see them. We read all of them and we answer as many as we can. And today we have a great question uh, that comes from a listener. It says, hello, I am a lay leader of a Bible study at my Lutheran church. A member of the study has asked questions about the word kingdom, K-I-N-D-O-M, kingdom, that he has seen in writings. What can you tell me about this? I appreciate your help. Well, that is a great question. And uh, we have a special guest to help us answer that question today. Uh, Our guest is Christopher Fan Kaufman, uh, who teaches uh, Greek for us here at Luther Seminary as an adjunct and is finishing up his PhD in New Testament at the University of Minnesota, even as we speak. So thank you, uh, Christopher, for joining us. Uh, you've encountered this um, this wordplay, right, between kingdom, K-I-N-D-O-M, and kingdom, uh, which is probably the more familiar term uh, in in reading the New Testament, kingdom of God, Basileia in, in Greek. So what, what can you tell us about why do some people say kingdom and what relationship does that have to, to that kingdom of God? Yeah, happy to talk about it. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to hear in the intro that we're doing both answers and reflections, because this is a question that I think will not leave us with any definitive answers, but we can reflect sort of on what's going on with this formulation. I'm glad that you brought up that it's a play on words. Um, Sometimes puns get relegated to the kind of grown-worthy dad joke uh, sort of (laughs) sphere. Uh, But one of the interesting things is that, especially the Hebrew Bible, but the Greek New Testament as well, loves puns. We see this in the way that uh, the Genesis plays on the fact that the first man, Adam, is made from the dust, Adama. Uh, In the New Testament, it's perhaps the most famous one is uh, Jesus will build his church on the rock, Petros, Peter, his name means Rocky. And so kingdom is in this way, another one of these play on words, which is working with an existing word kingdom and riffing on it to make a point or to make a a modification or an explanation of this word. Uh, I was actually thinking about it started in the mid nineties. I think I was looking hmm. up where this word kind of first appeared wow. uh, in a work research. in a work called Muharista theology. Uh, it's just funny because it, it's been floating around for a while. And so I wanted to know kind of where, where is this going here? And so yeah. Muharista theology was a work by uh, Adam Maria Isasi Diaz and Muher is the Spanish word for woman. And so this is, a feminist theology written explicitly from the standpoint of Hispanic women. Mm-hmm. And within this, she was unhappy with the word 
kingdom. And not the word itself, but with the connotations of the word. Kingdom, mm -hmm. of course, necessitates a king mm -hmm. and necessitates a ruler and a sense of hierarchy mm -hmm. and all of the things that come with kings. And so in her dissatisfaction, she came up with this pun. And so instead of a kingdom, she talks about a kingdom. That is, instead of a hierarchy with a king, a family of equality. And so this is where that kin, as in your kith and kin, your family comes mm. in. Mm. And so it's playing off of the, especially the New Testament imagery of the church as uh, the family of Christ, the brothers and sisters of Christ, and so forth. You can, you can see the attraction of it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. not just the hierarchy, kind of patriarchy implied with the word king. For, or yeah, king. why couldn't it be a queendom? Yeah, right. <laughs> just saying. But, uh, but also just the kind of weirdness of that, right? Like, we don't have kings yeah. in the same way that the ancient world did. I mean, there's Presumably, at some point when Queen Elizabeth dies, there will be a king, right, King Charles uh, of England. But even so, they're primarily, um, you know, figureheads or just um, what not not no real power uh, associated with them. Yeah, especially uh, and, since the rise of democracy. Right. There's not a ton of power, at least in most of like Western concepts of royalty or, you know, kingship or something. So, so you can see the attraction, right? It's, it's yep. kind of outdated and it's patriarchal and hierarchical. Um, and kingdom just sounds a lot more, I don't know, warm and fuzzy or something, right? It's, mm -hmm. as you said, Christopher, right? It's that family, that idea of family, even though kin is a kind of pretty outdated word too. We don't usually use it, but, but, but so, so what do you think, um, like what, what are the benefits? Those are some of the benefits, I guess, of saying kingdom. What do we miss, though, if anything, between kingdom and kingdom? Yeah. So one of the things I think is so interesting about this particular phrase, this turn of phrase and the contrast that we have here, is it highlights very well the dilemma that biblical translators face. Yeah. And the dilemma that they face is that Unlike, say, an interpreter, you know, if you went to a country where you didn't speak the language and you hired an interpreter, you'd want them to focus pretty much solely on your everyday needs, the needs mm -hmm. of knowing what's going on, ordering food, getting a taxi, those sorts of things. You don't want them to talk about the history of the words that they're using <laughs> because you're hiring them for a particular uh, task. If you're translating ancient works, let's say you're translating Homer's Iliad, which is a story about the Trojan War, uh, you're just focusing on what these ancient Greek words mean in their ancient setting. And you're not worried so much about their modern, kind of mm. modern equivalents of them. Mm. Right. For biblical translators, you're kind of stuck in the middle. On the one hand, you are very much interested in the ancient context and the ancient meanings of these words. On the other, these are texts that are still alive and are still being used and making differences in people's lives and communities. Hmm. And so you're wondering about what it is that, uh, how does this text translated to apply to a modern community? And so we see between kingdom and kingdom, I think we have an interesting example of one that is very modern focused, one that hmm. is very focused on the needs of a specific community, and then one that is pointing back towards uh, the ancient world. 
I was thinking about that with kings, though, because the one of the funny things about kings in terms of when we talk about, say, uh, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, is that kings, especially in English, have a very sort of medieval times feel, yeah. kind of mm-hmm. King Arthur, yeah, sure. uh, right? Right. Uh, you know, Excalibur, uh, yeah. the Knights or of the Round Table, right? Disneyland, sure. the Magic Kingdom, and yeah. kind of uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, princesses yeah. and fairy tales and mm-hmm. so forth. Right. And so one of the things we'd want to think about with kingdom is just sort of who would an ancient person in the first century think of in terms of kings? And I think we have some interesting questions in terms of, we have King Herod, who is the king when uh, the baby Jesus is born. Uh, His sons are not as good at ruling as he was, and so they don't get to be kings. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's not really a king in uh, Judea or Israel, what we now call Israel, at the time of Jesus. But there is an emperor There is a Roman emperor. We hear about this in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus' ministry starts in the reign of the emperor Tiberius. And so the question is, of course, uh, should this word instead be translated something more like empire? Is there a contrast being drawn between not a kingdom as in the kingdom of Judea, but between the Roman empire and all that it signifies and stands for and the kingdom of God that's coming? So I think one of the things, kind of to get back to to the question that you asked about what do we miss, we miss perhaps the very sharp contrast that is being drawn between empire as it existed in that day, the Roman Empire, and its claims to power and to peace and so forth, and then the counterclaims of God's kingdom or God's empire that is asked to come in the prayer. Um, And so kingdom, though, I think it is a more comforting word because it misses those undertones of empire and of power and of ruling, uh, does miss a little bit in terms of, uh, we could call it the subversive or the countercultural, you know, whichever adjective you'd like, but that nature of the gospel that is playing with the existing power structures and talking about them uh, in ways that cause you to think about them and to have them in the back of your mind, but then modify them as well. Yeah. A couple, a couple things kind of came to my mind while you were talking, Christopher. And and one is about how like the really um, the, if you're, if you're comparing the empire to the, the kingdom of God, right. That those were both um, totalizing concepts, right. By which I mean, you know, the, the Roman emperor was seen as divine, that the empire itself was seen as divine. It had ultimate authority and power over the earth. And here's Jesus making an alternative claim about what is the ultimate source of power and who is the ultimate source of power. Um, And that is, you know, God, not not the emperor. Right. And that's, that's a very, I mean, that's why they killed him. Right. Because he was like politically subversive. It wasn't because he was such a nice guy and the meanies couldn't, you know, they didn't want to hear that they needed to forgive. It was because they executed him as, as a political enemy to the state because he was making a claim that the emperor and that the empire itself wasn't 
actually divine, but that God and God's rule and God's way of life was the ultimate power uh, in the cosmos. And that, you know, that was treason. <laughs> so I think with kingdom, you, you, you miss that. Um, the other thing that like kind of strikes me as we're talking about it, I, I recently um, finished uh, a book by N.T. Wright, When God Became King, mm. um, which is, you know, it talks about how Jesus project, Jesus mission, Jesus ministry um, was political in many ways. And it talks about sort of the alternate political order that Jesus is trying to bring with the kingdom and also how Jesus coming as the Messiah, which means anointed one, which is a royal term, right? Uh, reflecting back to like the Davidic promises in the Old Testament, uh, how that also shows God fulfilling and completing and um, keeping all of the promises that God made to Israel, that those promises are like um, kept in Christ. Um, and so I think, again, kingdom, in that sense, we sort of miss the continuity of the scripture, the ways in which, you know, understanding Jesus as king, Jesus as bringing this alternative cosmic order to earth um, uh, is a claim that is both contrasted to the claims of power on earth and also is a claim of God's faithfulness and how God fulfills God's promises to Israel. Um, so those are a couple of things as well that I think that we miss it in that formulation. Yeah. I think there's some very, you've highlighted some very interesting things kind of towards that second point. One of the things that we see, especially in the early church is the, application of the coronation psalms there's a mm. series of psalms in the old testament that have to do with the coronation of a king and psalm 2 especially is very much a favorite of the early church as they talk about uh, what it means for jesus to be the messiah and again in that you're you're right we have this use of this imagery of kingship and of messiahship and of jesus as the new david uh, with an explicit political edge. And I think one, the other point kind of more broadly is that it's important to remember in the ancient world, this divide that we have in modernity between what we would call church and state or the political and the religious um, would have been very foreign to them. Mm -hmm. When you look at say King David being the, the paramount example, he is not just king as in a political figure, he is God's chosen and anointed ruler yep. over Israel. And the Roman emperor makes the same sort of claims about himself. We see this going back to the first emperor, Augustus. This is Luke chapter two in the Christmas story in the reign of Caesar Augustus. Mm -hmm. uh, he's called Augustus because he is divine, mm -hmm. because he is the one chosen by the gods mm -hmm. to bring the, not the free world, I guess the the subjugated world to bring that world together. And so again, I think you're, you're very right to point out we have in this claim of God's kingdom and Christ's kingship, a challenge to that authority. So I, I really appreciate that uh, insight because um, while, while translating 
kingdom of God and the kingdom of God, we can understand the impulse behind that. Um, it, it does, it loses some of the subversive quality as you were talking, as you both were talking about, right? That, that, that this is a claim that God is king, that, that Jesus is Lord, right? Not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Uh, in a way that uh, that that it, that kingdom doesn't capture, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I will I will say that kingdom may capture something else, you know, some related aspect of this idea of the kingdom of God or the church, uh, as you know, a, a, the family of God, the you know, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we see those kinds of family metaphors uh, in the New Testament as well. But it but it loses that political edge. So uh, so th- I guess just as as people hear that, maybe um, understanding what what the benefits and the um, the drawbacks are of using that word. I, our friend Alan Paget, who's been on this podcast, he like he's fond of saying uh, when kingdom of God comes up, he he calls it the reign and realm of God, yeah. which I think it is a useful way of talking about it too because it's. Um, you know, it avoids the kind of hierarchy or patriarchy, but it, but it, I think, implies or has that kind of fullness of the idea of God's power, God's reign. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, just another alternative, you know, uh, yeah. way of, of thinking about kingdom of God. Yeah. We, we, oh, go ahead, Kim. I was just going to say, and in defense of kingdom, you can imagine that that comes out of a context that is trying to. So the entire point of the kingdom of God in like the gospels and the New Testament is to show how different the ways of God are from the ways of the powers of the world. And yet over the centuries, that's gotten flipped where people take then using the word kingdom, they take the the power structures and the violence, you know, and, and the coercive nature of the empires of the world and say, well, if God's kingdom is a kingdom, then that must mean that we're justified in using violence and coercion and these sorts of things. And so you can see how kingdom is a correction to that move that has historically happened that you certainly couldn't argue that hasn't happened with crusades and with colonization and violence and Christian nationalism and all of these things that like attempt to marry the power of the state with the power of God in a, in a, in a violent way. So in that sense, it's sort of um, deconstructing the deconstruction, but now we're getting like super meta and it's like a, it's like a, it's like a, um, <laughs> I forgot the word I was going to say. What is that? that movie Inception. Inception yeah. <laughs> it's like a dream within a dream. It's like yeah, it's like a it's like a linguistic inception. <laughs> yeah. well, so. No, that's a that's a good that's a good point, Katie. Maybe we should end with talking about what what is the nature, uh yeah, a reflection of a reflection of a reflection. So what that what then is what characterizes the kingdom of God then yeah. uh, as opposed to the Roman Empire or any other empires uh, that we uh, experience now or uh, have experienced in the past? What what characterizes the kingdom of God in the New Testament? Yeah, I think it's a book that makes uh, some folks uncomfortable, partially because of its popularity in. Some, pop, some circles, but the book of Revelation is a book that is very concerned with this question, with the question of what does the kingdom of God look like? And especially what does it look like in contrast to the Roman empire? If you're interested in this question, 
I highly recommend uh, rereading the book of Revelation because it is explicitly asking this question. And at the end of the book of Revelation, it tells us what that looks like. And it looks like the nations of the earth gathering together, not in hierarchy, but to praise God as one body, many voices coming together to praise God. And it looks like prosperity and abundance of growth. We get that beautiful image of the river that flows through the city of God with the fruit trees flowering or bearing fruit around it. And so revelation... And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. Mm -hmm. And so revelation is taking this, this kingdom imagery of, of the Roman empire, which the Roman empire says that they bring peace and prosperity through their domination of the world. And it takes Pax Romana. Exactly. And it takes that imagery and says that no, in fact, in the kingdom of God brings true abundance and true peace and true equality, where the nations come together, not dominated by the one nation, Rome, but come together in praise of uh, God in the new creation that God makes. And so I think that's one one author's way of trying to show us what this kingdom looks like and what it means for God to truly be king uh, in opposition to the Roman Empire. Wow, that's uh, that's profound and, and really beautiful. Thank you, Christopher. I know we could talk uh, a lot more about kingdom of God, but hopefully this at least began to address uh, our, our listeners' question about kingdom versus kingdom. Uh, and uh, we really thank you for uh, for being with us and talking about the, the, the kind of political and subversive nature of that uh, phrase, kingdom of God, and and the alternative vision that it offers uh, to the to the to the people in power and those uh, and the good news it offers to those who are who are oppressed. So yeah, thank wonderful you. Wonderful to be oh, here. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. So good to have you. Um, thanks uh, to our listeners for listening to this episode of the Enter the Bible podcast. You can get high quality courses and commentaries and resources and videos and reflections at enterthebible.org. Thanks for joining us.